to be back. I'm glad to um, kind of start a new series. You guys know that I like to kind of preach through series and kind of give you a little bit of a synopsis of what we're going to be doing for the next few weeks. That way kind of you know we're kind of a little bit prepared for maybe the topic of the Sunday that we're going to be talking about. This summer we're going to dive into what I'm calling our summer series that's going to cover the book of Romans. And I've entitled this series Set Apart, and, and we're going to kind of get into that uh, this morning. Uh, like I said, we had an incredible trip and an incredible time in Haiti. Uh, I got to see God do some really amazing things, and, and, and you're going to have a time to hear all that over the coming weeks. And we've got VBS and Fourth of July and some things that are going to kind of come in between that. But uh, we'll have a big share time, and I'm really excited about this summer and and what all is going to happen this summer as we launch back into the fall. Uh, we've kind of got our calendar planned out all the way through uh, really the first few weeks of September and, and kind of know what all is going to happen through that and, and kind of some new ministries that are going to start in the fall and, and some things that we're going to start doing. I'm, I'm really excited to start talking about all that. But first... We're going to go into Romans, and this is really going to carry us all the way through maybe the end of August. Uh, we're going to push all the way through July with this and, and the majority of August. We're not going to take it chapter by chapter, but we are going to hit some really incredible high points out of this book. If you've not read the book of Romans in a while, then I encourage you to go home over the next couple of weeks and begin reading through that. And, and if you don't, I told one of our translators... Um, when we were in, in Haiti, she handed me her Bible. It was a French Bible, uh, and so I was just kind of thumbing through it, just looking at it, and, and she had uh, all things highlighted and underlined in it, and I handed it back to her, and I said, I like a dirty Bible. And she kind of looked at me funny, and I said, that means you're using it. She said, oh, yes, I write in my Bible all the time. So if you don't do that, I encourage you to write in there, highlight things, find things that really stand out to you, and see what God's going to speak to us over this next few months in, in Romans. I, I love this book, and it's really kind of uh, an in-your-face book. If you read through Romans, it's kind of like, this is what a Christian is, and this is what a Christian does. And if you don't do those things, and if you aren't those things, then don't call yourself a Christian. And it's kind of going to be in our face a little bit as well. And I encourage you to come and be a part of this, be a part of this study as we walk through this. One commentator I read said this about the book of Romans, the most profound discussion about the most profound subject in all of Scripture, God's plan and purpose for saving sinners. That's what this book is all about. So we're going to dive in to really what this is and what this really is not. And uh, the most... I guess the best way so we could start is really understanding uh, Romans. So, Jessica, we're going to just kind of introduce this topic this Sunday. We're really going to start stepping on toes next week. Is that okay? I had somebody text me this week, do I need to wear my steel-toe boots? I said, maybe a little bit, but next week for sure, right? And so we've got to understand Romans. Paul wrote the book of Romans. Most of us understand that, right? He wrote this in about 57 A.D. This is uh, about 20 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Paul has already been converted. You guys know who Paul was. He was the, the chief among Christian persecutors. He, uh, he made a living off of killing Christians. And he had an incredible God moment on the road to Damascus. And, uh, and God changed his heart. And he became really the first Christian missionary. He reached out to non-Jews, to the Gentiles, that's us, people who are not Jewish. And he began to really pouring into them and sharing the gospel with them and, and, and would be in his travels and did all this kind of stuff. And in about 57 A.D., he wrote to the church in Rome. Now, um, I guess really to understand the book of Romans, you have to understand Rome in itself. If you, if you heard the old adage, all roads lead to Rome, have you heard that before? It's really pretty true. Uh, if, you, if you look back in Roman history, it's, it's incredible. It's compelling. Uh, I got elbow deep in all this over the last week and uh, really began to find some things that even I didn't even know. The Romans were the first people that made major road systems. We Most of us knew that. Uh, but what you don't maybe know is that wagons and chariots and things like that were prohibited from using the roads because they were for military use only. They became, they invented really the first version of concrete and had these big milling plants that would make concrete and they would pour their roads and have these incredible highway system over 53,000 miles of highways the Romans built. They were first to issue or to insulate their buildings. Uh, they, would, they would seal them with a sealant and they'd go back and seal it again and it would insulate the buildings. It'd keep it warm during the cold 
months. They were the very first glass blowers in the world. If you don't know, like our home away from home is Silver Dollar City. We go to Branson all the time. One of our Christmas presents this last year were season passes to Silver Dollar City. We go as much as we can. And, and I would sit in that little glass blowing place and watch those guys blow glass all day long. I think it's incredible. It's mesmerizing to me. I would love to try it, but I know that I would just mess it up. I don't have an artistic bone in my body. I just, I want to be a part of that that kind of culture i want to i want a blacksmith i don't know why i've been watching a show on a and e where these guys make these knives and i tell jessica every day i'm like i'm going to get me an anvil she's like why and i'm like i don't know i don't know what to do with it i'm going to bang stuff on it i'm going to figure it out right i want to do stuff like that but the romans were the first really to kind of start this glass blowing and kind of being real artistic with things um they they built and constructed these aqueducts that were just incredible. And if you've done any kind of research in, in, on Roman construction, you know how these things fed uh, over a million cubic meters of water into the city every day. That's enough water to sustain three and a half million people today. They would pump all this water in. It was all this gravity-fed. It was this incredible, um, incredible aqueduct system. And, and the one that led from Constantinople, from its original source, was over 210 miles long. And it's all at enough of a grade, downhill grade, to feed continual water to this city. It's just incredible. They had a sanitation department, like, right? I want to go, okay, Haitians, let's figure it out. If the Romans can do it uh, a couple of thousand years ago, then when we can get something in place here. And if you went to Haiti, praise the Lord, the Romans had the first people to have flushing toilets, right? This is an incredible invention. And if you went to Haiti, you were so thankful for a flushing. They have flushing toilets there. There's just other things that we're not going to talk about on Sunday morning that you have to do, okay? All those that went to Haiti understand what I'm saying. They made great uses of dams and bridges and amphitheaters. We know the Colosseum and all these incredible structures that they would build. They were the ones to invent the crane. They were, they were able to move to six to seven tons of cargo at a time with the, with the invention of the crane. This was about 400 years after Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, uh, the Greek philosophers that were heavily influenced um, and, and really brought their, their way of th thinking and teaching into Roman cultures. The Romans were really heavily induced and kind of bathed in Greek philosophy. Uh, they, Rome, uh, Aristotle was about 400 B.C., and so this was about 400, 450 years after Aristotle. Uh, and guys like Epicurus was around there, and Epicurus, he, he, taught, um, he taught that life just happens. And that we have to accept the good and the bad and however it comes at us. We really have no control over life. That was his philosophy. And he was a major thinker around 50 A.D. in Rome. Um, about 100, 150 A.D. was when Marcus Aurelius was around. And he was an emperor and kind of a philosopher in his own right. Uh, there's, this is kind of the hub of all activity, of all things in the world. The Romans were in kind of in the, the limelight of it all. Uh, there's really no biblical record of how Christianity came to Rome. If you, if you do some research, there's some people that say that Peter, uh, Peter went to Rome at some point and preached and, and kind of began the, the, the Christian movement in Rome. Um, some people say after the day of Pentecost that the people who were there that experienced the day of Pentecost, that some of them went to Rome and started these little house churches uh, when we think about church, we think about a big massive structure like this. And, and really in, in, in Corinthians and in, in, in Philippi and in all these little communities in, in, in that Paul would write these letters to, they were merely more like house churches. They were small groups of people. And they would pass these letters around to the different churches that were in that area. So when Paul wrote Romans, he wasn't writing like First Baptist Church Rome. That's, like, that's not what he did. He just wrote a letter to the people who lived in that city, and, and they would pass it around. And, and so there's really no biblical record of who was there first, but we do know that when Paul wrote in 57 that there was an established church in Rome, that there were people there that he knew by name. He called them out. There's, there's a number of different people that he talks about throughout this, this letter. And so there are strong, faith-based, Bible-believing 
Jesus-loving people in Rome. And, and we read all about that, and we think, well, that's great. That's, that's no big deal. But the thing is, is that they're all Gentiles. They're not Jews. And the reason why we know that is because the emperor Claudius in 49 AD expelled all the Jews from Rome. He saw them as a threat. He said, you guys got to get out. He pushed them all out of Rome. And that included the Jewish Christians that were a part of that group as well. He put, kicked them all out. And so the people who were left were all either Roman or some other nationality, not Jew, but they were what we would consider Gentiles. And so Paul is writing to this Gentile group of people. And here's what happens. This is where everything gets real interesting. This is like days of our lives, 50 AD. Okay? So Claudius, the emperor in Rome, uh, who kicks all the Jews out. He has, uh, he's married. He has uh, a biological son and a biological daughter. His wife, we don't really, you know, didn't, I didn't really find out if she died or if he had her killed or it happens a lot that, you know, they just divorced. Anyway, he remarried. And he married this lady called Agrippa the Younger. Agrippa the Younger um, had a biological son with her first husband who passed away when that boy was just three years old. Um, she married the emperor, the, the, the ruler of Rome, Claudia. And the very first thing that she did, she was very smart. She said, you have to adopt my son. He will not just be a child that lives in this house. He will be your child. And so Claudius brings him in, brings her in, and he adopts this little boy that we now know as Nero. Claudius eventually dies. A lot of people think that um, Nero may have a hand in that. He, some people say that he was poisoned by mushrooms. Um, and so he was eating one day, he falls over, and he dies. And now um, there's a little bit of a power struggle. Remember, Claudius had a, a biological son, but he also now has adopted this boy. And all of a sudden, the next thing we read is that 17-year-old Nero rises to power. And he's now in charge of the entire Roman Empire. He is the emperor in Rome. The, the biological son, he tries to start a little revolt. It didn't end well for him, right? There was a couple little battles that kind of died down. Next thing we know, all we read about is Nero. Nero's rise to power kind of helped out by his marriage to Octavia, which was Claudius's biological daughter, which was Nero's stepsister slash cousin. Starting to sound a little familiar, right, Arkansas? So he marries... His stepsister slash cousin, because what I didn't tell you, I forgot, Claudius was Agrippa the Younger's uncle. Weird, right? It's like going to a family reunion to pick out your date. It just doesn't happen. Shouldn't, I mean, shouldn't happen, church. Holy cow. And so, Nero and Octavia, they are married, they are uh, happily in love until he just gets tired of her. Agrippa the Younger, his mom, is a major part in Nero's early rule. If you, if you go back and read some histories, the, the coins, the Roman coins, always had a picture of the emperor on it. Well, the first few years of the coins under Nero's rule had a picture of Nero and his mom, which is very interesting. Never, it really doesn't happen, I think, ever again, but it had the emperor and his mom on there. Well, Nero, being Nero, gets tired of mom's influence, right? And so he does what every good son would do. He puts her on a boat, and he pushes her off into the sea, and he makes a phone call, I don't know if he can do that, to the Navy, and he says, hey guys, sink that boat. And so the Navy comes along and sinks mom's boat, but mom's crafty and she knows how to swim, and so she swims back to shore. And Nero finds out and he says, okay, I'm not going to play games anymore. Hey, army, guys who are trained to kill, can you just go kill my mom? And so the army guys go and they finally kill um, Nero's mom, Agrippa the Younger, and one of her last words says, whatever my son has told you, it is untrue. And then the guys run her through with a sword. And so mom's now out of the picture, but now I've got this really nagging wife, right, Octavia. This is my cousin, and I'm tired of her. And so he decides that it's time for her to go. Um, but, but really what pushed him over the edge is that she became pregnant. So he kind of, okay, I'm excited. This is great. 
I've got, a, I've got an heir. He's going to push on our name. This is going to be perfect. But, oh, it was a girl. And nobody likes a girl. And so we're going to just kill you because you gave me a girl. I'm pretty sure. And he starts this rumor. I'm pretty sure you had an affair because I make men. I make boys. And since this is not a boy, you must have had an affair. It was just an outrageous claim. And so they put her to death on a, on a false charge of adultery. And so he finds a new wife. And I'm going to, her name is Popesa. And that's the best I can do to pronounce that. He is head over heels for his wife. And then she gets pregnant, and he gets mad. And, the, and historians say that he kicks her in the stomach so hard it kills her and her baby. This is a great guy. This is a guy that we want to name our kids after. And so he marries again. This person uh, is, is kind of just already married, and so it makes it real awkward and so somehow along the line, her husband committed suicide, like Hillary, Hillary committed suicide. And I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. And so this person's now dead, and so he can marry her, and, and things kind of go great for a while, but he gets tired of her. And so he ends up, this is the craziest part of the story, the, he, he sees a male slave of his, has him castrated, and marries his male slave because he reminds her, reminds him of his second wife that he kicked in the stomach and killed. And he lives out the rest of his days until he finally gets overthrown and ends up getting killed and all this crazy stuff. Nero is this awful person. I could talk about how the Olympic Games were postponed a year because he wanted to compete and he wasn't ready. And so as emperor, he said, we're not doing them. We'll wait a year. And they waited a year, and just so happened in his chariot race that he was competing in, he fell off his chariot. But somehow was awarded first place in the race. And the judge that awarding him the first place in the race just so happened to get a million dollars put in his bank account the next day. We could talk about how Rome was set on fire during his rule. And the, the historians say that he stood on top of his tower in his castle and he played the harp and he sang and he danced as Rome burned for six days and seven nights. Almost everything in Rome was burned to pieces. And he did that so that he could rebuild Rome how he wanted. Just so happened to include an incredibly huge statue of none other than himself in the middle of Rome. What happened in this moment is that there was a little bit of a, of, a, of a backlash, a little bit of a mob mentality that came back and said, you did this to our city. Nero, you burned our town down. And so he had to have a scapegoat. His only scapegoat was the Christians. And that's really where he really started putting most of his focus into us, his hatred into the Christian population. Nero hated the Christians in Rome. He hated them with a passion. He would crucify them on a regular basis. He, he would throw them in lion's pits as entertainment. He would uh, dip them in oil and hang them in the city and let them, light them on fire as lampposts for the city and let people burn alive. He would wrap them in, in, in meat and let dogs rip them apart. One historian said, It was felt as though they were being destroyed not for the public good, but to gratify the cruelty of an individual. Nero hated Christians. So, why all this information about the emperor? Because Paul, in the middle of Nero's reign, in the middle of the terror that he was imparting on Christians in Rome writes a very in-your-face letter to the church where he says things like Romans 1.16 I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 12, 1. Therefore, I urge you, my brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. 
This is your spiritual act of service. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen, in the face of evil, in the face of a man who would really prevent and discourage people from becoming Christians, Paul wrote a remnant of believers in Rome. He wrote unapologetically to them and stand and basically just said, stand tall. Stand up for what you believe. Stand up for what is right. Stand up in the face of adversity. Stand up for what you know to be true and right about God and stand tall. Church, in the face of things that we face today, stand tall. Stand up for what is right and what is true and what is godly. Stand up for what is biblically based and what is founded in the truth of God's word. Stand tall, church. That's why we're going through this book. In the face of everything that was anti-God, Paul writes a group of people who were so on fire for what God was doing in their life. He wrote to encourage them, to correct them, to motivate them to stand tall, to be set apart. Here's what Martin Luther said. I've got this quote on the screen. This is incredible. Martin Luther said this about the book of Romans. This epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much. It is more, and the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. You see the beauty in that language. See, Romans, if you know church history, we had the established church of England, which was the Catholic church that we know today, that had the Pope and had all the bishops and all the hierarchy and all the things that was so good and so bad all at the same time. And Martin Luther comes in and he reads as a monk the book of Romans. And he gets to that verse that we read earlier, Romans 5, 1, where it says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace through God our Lord Jesus Christ. And he starts really, start really struggling with this idea of justification and righteousness and God's imputing righteousness on us as opposed to us earning it and saying enough Hail Marys and doing enough things that we can earn our own righteousness. And Martin Luther posts his 99 Theses on the, on the wall of a church on October 31st and just says, here's some things that we need to reform about church. We need to get rid of all the pomp and circumstance and get down to a relationship with Jesus because that's what it's really all about. And Romans is what brought this whole idea of the Protestant protesting reformation reform we're trying to protest and reform the church to make it about what god wants to make it about and what jesus came to teach about not about all the ceremonious stuff it's about relationship with jesus and it all was bred out of the book of romans that's the reason why we gather and we worship like we do today and so this book that has so much knowledge and truth and just depth in it, we're going to begin to walk through. This book that was written in the face of an evil emperor who hated Christians, who thought himself a god, Paul sets down in 57 AD and begins to write. And he begins to write this book that draws all things back into the account of who God really is. And what he really came to do. And how his plan for people like you and I is carried out. And so we're going to read the introduction this morning. It's as far as we're going to go. If you've got your Bible, Romans chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to read the first seven verses in Romans. And this is incredible. We're going to go right through it. And then we're going to be done. Starts off with this. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his 
prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in the power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are being called and belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. There is so much in this one introduction that we're just going to kind of piece apart a little bit of it, and then we're going to call it done for today. First thing I want us to recognize, number one, is Paul's recognition of his role. Starts off, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. You read this, you automatically stop and think, servant? This is Paul. This is the guy who wrote the majority of the New Testament. This is the first major missionary. He, he experienced Jesus face to face. Why is he considering himself a, a servant? He's, he's opposing Nero. But that's exactly who we are supposed to be. Jesus himself said in Matthew 20, 28, said, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And give his life as a ransom for many. Listen, we just came back from a country where people have nothing. Like they have, they have less than nothing. Sheet metal shacks. Old rusted out, used, bent sheet metal. They'd come and they'd bang it out as flat as they can. And they'd get some sticks and, and rope them up. And, and kind of lean the sheet metal against it as best as they can. And, one guy we went to had a, had a house that, that was really just a tarp and some sheets. And we asked him, how long have you lived here? And he said, I've lived here for four years under a tarp and some sheets. Dirt floor, no bathroom, no cooking area. And he lived on the side of a mountain, so when it rained, all that water just rushed through everything that he had. These people had nothing. And the, we'd come up to their house and our translators would do just an incredible job of asking if we could come in and talk to them. And, and a lot of them would have some sort of boundary. They all, a lot of cactus can grow over there and, and, and they grow this cactus up as like almost a fence row to keep people out of their area. And so um, we'd stand on the other side of that cactus until we were invited in and we would come in. And the very first thing that they would do Patients are just wonderful people. I love their heart. We would come in, and, and there was 25 of us, and we broke down into three different groups. And so we had eight to ten people in our group. And then we'd have a couple of translators and a couple of other people who were kind of hunting out, and then 15, 20 kids that were just following us around. And the very first thing when we walked into their house, they would start, they'd go inside, they'd say, yes, you can come in. They'd turn around, and they'd go inside their house, and they'd come out with every lawn chair, plastic chair, stool, bucket, anything that we could sit on. And they'd start passing it out. And they would tell us to sit down, please. Please sit down. Please, you sit down. And they would stand in a corner, or they'd sit on the floor, and they'd make sure that we all had some place comfortable to sit. They, they understand what it means to put someone's needs above your own. We People come into my house. If you sit in my chair, I'm going to look at you funny. I'm like, my chair. I mean, I'll get over it, but it's my chair. Like, I just want you to know. And these people who have nothing want us to be comfortable so that we can tell them about somebody they don't know yet. See, they understand what it means to be a servant. And they understand what it means to, to serve people. Some people, some of our teams that were out... People were offering them food, food that they didn't have to offer. Some sort of spaghetti noodle pasta thing that I would not have eaten, but they did. And they ate because they wanted, they wanted to be able to share something with them. Listen, I don't have much, but listen, what I've got, would you like some of it? 
Thank, and every, thank you for coming to our country to help us. Thank you for coming and telling me about I've known a little bit about Jesus, but I want to know more. Will you share with me more about Jesus? We, we don't understand what it means to be a servant. We have an issue with that word. Paul here in Romans 1, 1, Colossians 1, 23, Titus 1, 1, he refers to himself as a servant over and over and over again. There's an element of service that comes with being a Christ follower. There's an element of humbleness. There's an element of surrender that comes with being a follower of Jesus. And this word that's used in the NIV, this a servant of Christ, is translated as slave, bond slave, and other translations. And really the, that word just means that Paul understands that he has an owner, that he's owed he owes a debt to someone, that he has been purchased by someone. 1 Corinthians 6.20 tells us that we were bought with a price. In church, we, when we begin to identify ourselves as a servant, as a slave to Christ, as a servant to others, then we understand the magnitude of our position and how really small we become the sake of other people. He says, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle or set apart as an apostle for the gospel of God. Now, this is kind of where we begin to struggle on another level, right? To be thinking about how we're set apart. If I were to ask you, do you feel like you're special? Unfortunately, the younger generation would say, absolutely, my mama tells me I'm special all the time. Right? We, got, we have people who try out for American Idol because their mama's never told them that they can't sing. Because they're great at everything. Oh, honey, it's okay that you ran the other direction on the field. It's fine. You're special. Right? And we have this generation that's growing up as very entitled. as though, Yes, I'm, I'm set apart. I'm the greatest thing that's ever walked on the face of the planet. But when we really get down to it, do you feel like that you're set apart? We, we probably think that, yes, when it comes to our salvation, I get it. I'm set apart. I've been saved. I've been called to be an alien, a stranger to this world that God has set me apart because I am saved. I understand that. But when it goes a little bit deeper than that, are you really set apart? Are you, are you appointed for something? The word set apart, the, the original word literally means to mark off from others, to appoint for a purpose. Do you have a purpose, church? We understand this idea of servanthood. But to be, to be a servant with a purpose is a whole new thought to a lot of us. We think, I mean, I'm just kind of here. Like, like I get that I'm, I've been, maybe I've been born and raised in the morning. I've, I've grown up here and I've known people my whole life here. And, and I kind of just do my thing. I've got my job. I've got my family. I do our you know, fun activities. We just kind of go through life. But to stop and think that you've been set apart for a purpose changes your perspective on your everyday. Paul says that he was set apart for the gospel, which I think, aren't we all? Isn't that a great purpose to be set apart for? Isn't that the most incredible job responsibility that we could have is being set apart for the gospel? I believe that God has a very specific purpose that He wants to accomplish in and through our life and that He set us apart for a very specific reason and a very specific thing and it's our job to figure out what that thing is. For some of you, it may be one thing, but for somebody else, it may be something completely different, but that's okay because God's given us all an individual and unique set-apart appointment that we have been set apart for the gospel. And he goes on to explain in verse 2. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who in his earthly life was a descendant of David, and through his spiritual of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. I love this. In the letter to the Romans, Paul quotes the Old Testament more than he does any other letter that he writes. More than 
any first or second corinthians more than philippians or ephesians or colossians more than any of those other books paul quotes the old testament more in romans than he does anywhere else and he starts off saying listen from he was promised beforehand through the prophets in the holy scriptures he's not talking about the new testament here he's talking about the old testament he's talking about the prophets of the old testament isaiah he's talking about micah he's talking about daniel He's talking about these prophets in the Old Testament. He's saying this is the guy they were pointing to. Saying this Jesus, that, that in, his earthly, in his earthly heritage, he was descendant of David, but from heaven, he's the son of God. He said this guy, this is the one that everybody is pointing to. And what was his proof? Did you catch it? His proof that God, that Jesus was the son of God. Did you see what his proof was? by his resurrection from the dead we talked about this just a few months ago when easter when we were talking about uh whether the resurrection really happened or not and i said the defining point in christian history was the resurrection we put a lot of emphasis on easter and christmas but listen christmas wouldn't matter if easter didn't happen because of the resurrection of jesus he he made himself known to everyone as the Son of God. Because in the words of what we said over Easter, dead people don't normally do that. Dead people don't normally come back to life. And Jesus did this on His own after being dead for three days. That resurrection is what set Him apart. Is what, what denoted His Godship. It's what put his stamp of he really is the son of God because nobody else can do that. And so Paul says here, I've been set apart for the gospel of Jesus. I've been set apart by this man who in the Old Testament we have known, who has been pointing to him all along, and now through his, through his, through his genealogy of, of history as a son of David, but because of who he is, he is the son of God. And we know that because of his resurrection, the power of his resurrection. And so Paul is writing this letter. And in the very first two sentences, gives an in-your-face to Rome, to the emperor of Rome, who thinks himself God himself. Nero would say, I am God. I am the emperor, I am in charge, I am God. And Paul says, no, see, listen, we worship the, guys that, the guy that you guys crucified as a criminal. This, this man, Jesus, that hung on a cross 25 years ago, who came back to life, who has revealed himself to me, this is the guy that we worship as God because he is the son of God. He is the resurrected son of God. Paul starts this letter unapologetically saying who Jesus was and who he is now. He says, in everything that we are, I am a servant. I am an apostle of I am set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel that He promised through our prophets, through the descendant of His Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. He unapologetically calls God, God. Calls Jesus, Jesus. He doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't try to hide His intention. He doesn't cover and, or cower in the face of adversity. He declares His allegiance and His attention from the very beginning of the letter. So, church, why are we so ashamed of the gospel of the resurrected Christ? Why, over this past week, have I had no less than three to four to five different conversations with people who went to Haiti and who sat down with me at some point during the trip and said, Why can I not do this at home? Why do I come and I feel so comfortable walking up to a complete stranger who doesn't even speak my language and say, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you know who God is? Jerry West had a great question that he asked, and I'd go, Jerry, ask your question. He'd say, if you died tonight, would you go to heaven or hell? 
That's an incredible question. And we could fly a thousand miles over the ocean and we can land and we can speak to people that we've never seen before and we may never ever see again. And we can ask them pointed, direct, in-your-face questions of do you know who Jesus is because this is the most important thing that you'll ever hear in your whole entire life. Yet when we come back to the States and we go back home and we eat Sunday dinner at our grandma's house, we can't look across the table and say, do you know who Jesus is? We go to church on, or we go to work on Sunday or Monday morning. We have an office full of employees. We can't walk up to them and say, you know what, I just need you to know that God loves you and he has a plan for your life. And I know this may make an awkward conversation for the next couple of ten minutes, but I'm going to tell you about how much Jesus loves you. We can't set apart from, or across from some friends of ours whom we love dearly, who, who we would give the shirt off our back to and say, I want to make sure that you know that you know that you know because nothing else matters. And I don't care if you're angry with me. I don't care if you're awkward in this moment. I don't care if we talk again after this is over with. But you need to know that God loves you and that Jesus came and died a, died a sinner's death for you because he was perfect. He never did anything wrong. And he hung on a cross, not because he wanted to, but because you deserved it and Jesus came and he says I love you enough I'm going to die for you you don't, you don't deserve it. you're never going to earn it but I'm going to give you this gift of eternal life if you just put your faith in him and listen church gosh if I could get anything through to you it's more than a prayer that you prayed at VBS Listen, if you're banking on your eternal salvation because you prayed a prayer when you were eight years old and you've lived like hell the rest of your life, you're going there. Praying a prayer doesn't save you. Nowhere in the Bible, read it from front to back, I have a couple of different times, nowhere does it say, pray a prayer and ask Jesus into your heart and you're saved. That's not what it says. It says repent and be saved. Acknowledge your sin. Get right with God. Come under His Lordship and He will save you. Too many of us in the 21st century American church just say, I prayed a prayer. I walked an aisle. I got wet in a baptism. That must mean I'm saved. It does not mean you're saved. Stop playing the game. Paul writes this incredible letter to the Romans. And he says... Listen, through the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is who we are set apart for. And if you're not in that power, if you don't understand who that God is, then you're not saved. And we sit around and we play church and we complain about the air conditioning and we complain about, well, he didn't sing enough hymns this week or maybe he sang too many hymns this week or whatever your affiliation is with hymns. <laughs> don't have time for that this morning. When it really, what really matters is do you know Jesus? Have you really committed your heart and your life to Him? See, we, the last day we went out in the village, we talked to a man. I, we'd gone and talked to an individual, a couple, a guy and his sister, I think. And our, one of our translators, our village champions, and I'll explain who those people are later, he she came up to us, she said, we're going to go to one man's house and we, we need to skip all this extra. She kind of looked at her, because our, kind of our foot in the door is, how do you clean your water? Have you ever gone to the doctor? Kind of stuff. And She said, don't talk about any of that. She said, this man needs to hear about Jesus. She said, he's very, very sick. And he's a homosexual. And because he's sick, he probably has AIDS. That's what our crew probably figured out. That's what we all assume. He's been sick for a very long time. And because he's homosexual, the Christians won't come talk to him. And she looked at us, she said, but he needs to hear about Jesus. I said, let's go. So we went to this house, and he's sitting on a chair, and you could just tell he was just, he was just weak. He could barely sit and talk to us. And so we started to share with him a little bit about who Jesus is. And, and he said, I, I know about Jesus. And I want, to, I want to have a relationship with Jesus, but I just don't know enough about Him. And I've been praying that someone would come and tell me. And Judy said, well, Pastor Matt would love to tell you about Jesus. 
just looked over at Judy. Okay. And so I, I just hit it hard. Who Jesus is and what he'd done and how he loves us and what he did for us. And I, in the best way I could, the use of a translator, I just explained about who God really is and what it really means to be in a relationship with God. And I got through and I looked at him and I said, is this something that you have any questions? Or is this something that you have questions about? Or is there any reason why you wouldn't want to accept Jesus today? And our translator looked back at me and he said something and she looked back and she said, he's ready to accept. He wants to be saved. And so I got to lead this man who no one else would talk to, who had been praying for someone to tell him about Jesus. In a prayer of commitment of his heart and his life to the God who loved him enough to die for him. While we were praying, some of our team had stepped back and were kind of just taking this moment in and watching from a distance. And You know, you go through some of these things and sometimes you think, well, they really mean it, they really understand it. And they said that as he would pray, he was beating his chest about his sin and raising his hands about his Savior. That man got it. It was an incredible moment. And I talked to our champion and I said, you know, will you, will you come back and, and check on him? She said, I will be back. She said, I may be the only person that comes, but I'll be back. And I'll encourage him. And I'll continue to pray for him. And I'll continue to let him know that God has a plan for his life. Listen, church. We can do that in Haiti. And we can do that in Warren. And we can do that in our own home. We can do that within our own family. Romans is written in the face of evil stand up and stand tall and to be set apart for the gospel of Jesus. It tells us very clearly what it is and what it's not and if it's not, quit acting like it and start doing what you're supposed to do. Start believing how you're supposed to believe. Start really committing your life the way you're supposed to commit your life. Verse 5, he finishes it and I'm going to be done. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to obedience that comes through faith in his name's sake. This is great. Through him we receive what? Grace. I love that. Isn't it great when we receive grace? We receive something that we did not deserve. The Bible defines grace as the merciful kindness of God. That's wonderful. We get the merciful kindness of God. If it were not for grace, we would not exist. If it were not for grace, we would not be here. If it were not for grace, we could not be set apart for anything. And then he says, grace and apostleship. And we read that, and that's kind of a weird word. We don't use that word very often. What's, what's this apostleship thing? The literal meaning of apostleship means sending off. This is grace to go not like not like grace to go like drive through grace but grace to take with you this is grace to take to people who need grace we receive grace and apostleship to go to spread that grace to show that grace to tell and to share all because call people from among all the Gentiles to obedience that comes through faith. There's another word that we have an issue with, obedience. It's the same thing that Roman Christians struggle with, same thing that Haitians Christians struggle with, same thing that Warren Christians struggle with, this idea of obedience and really learning what it means to do what God's called us to do. The rest of this letter is going to 
is really going to take these few thoughts and they're just going to, he's just going to blow them up. He's just going to expound on incredibly what it means to live for God, what it means to, to what God has done to save us what righteousness looks like and justification looks like, what all these things that, that we take so for granted, what it really looks like when we begin to flesh it all out. But I don't want us to miss this morning. In, in the face of incredible adversity, Paul begins to write this in-your-face letter that, that identifies himself and his intentions, his Savior and his audience. And he says all these things because the grace that he has received. Are you willing to do this in your own life? Are you willing to communicate to the, to the people that you love just the thing that they need the most? After I got through praying with that guy, his name was John. It's a great name, great biblical name. I got down, he was sitting on a stool, and I got down really kind of in his face, I didn't mean to, but I just did. In, in language that he didn't understand, I said, that was the greatest decision you'll ever make. And our translator translates it, and he just did this. Because he knew. He knew that there was forgiveness there. He knew that there was grace there when there was not grace before. And so as we dive in, listen, we got through seven verses. We may be in here for the next two years in Romans. As we dive into this book, I encourage you to read it. Go home and read it. If you don't have a quiet time, you don't have a time where you just sit and you read God's Word, then I encourage you to start doing that. You've got to start somewhere, start in Romans. It's a great place. You're going to read things, you're going to go, what in the world is that? Ask questions. But as we dive into this, just remember that it all comes from a place of grace. Paul's going to say some things that are just so like, not abrasive, but they're hard to swallow. They're where you got to have your boots on, right? But it comes from a place of grace. And he's saying, listen, it's because of the grace that we've received that we can even process these things that God has done for us. Hey, this is Matt Overall, the pastor here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Just want to say thanks so much for watching our services, whether through our television ministry or our online ministry. We appreciate you so much being a part of Emmanuel Baptist Church, and we'd love to have you come and join our worship service. Uh, Sunday morning service starts at 10.30. Our small groups start at 9.30. And we'd love to have you be a part of it. We've got a lot of different ministries that happen at Emmanuel, from our children and youth that's focused on Wednesday nights to our uh, women's Bible studies that happen throughout the week. We'd love to have you be a part of everything that's going on here at Emmanuel. Thanks for watching.